Mac Jones is ripped. The Celtics may actually trade for Kevin Durant, and The Ringer has a new Boston show. I'm Brian Barrett, the host of Off the Pike, the show covering all things Boston sports. I'll have shows multiple times a week covering your favorite teams and with your favorite Ringer and local guests. Plus, maybe Bill will stop by to rant about the Sox. Follow Off the Pike with me, Brian Barrett, now on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud Anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. It is Wednesday, August 24th. If you're an HBO Max super fan like I am, you may have noticed that a few shows and movies have disappeared from the service recently. Actually, you probably didn't notice. These were about 35, 36 little known series and films like 12 Dates of Christmas, About Last Night, Ellen's Next Great Designer, Generation, an HBO show I did actually watch, Esme and Royal, Little Ellen, not exactly House of the Dragon. So what's going on here? It's actually kind of a big deal from the creator standpoint. These creators got no warning, it was not expected, and there's pretty much nothing they can do about it. So why is it happening? Simply put, it's about money. The owner of HBO Max, Warner Brothers Discovery, is going through a financial crunch, and it's looking for any ways to make or save money. The CEO, David Zaslav, knows that if they take shows off the platform, it means he doesn't have to pay residuals to the actors in those shows. And they can sell the shows to other platforms or buyers if they want to. It's a tens of millions of dollars decision to do this. But obviously, there are repercussions. Anime fans, animation fans, very hard hit by this move. They're very vocal. They like their shows. The creator of one of those shows, Infinity Train, went on Twitter to say he was extremely devastated for all of my sweet Cartoon Network friends who were only trying to make beautiful and hilarious stories and share them with the world. So why should you, a consumer of this content and a subscriber perhaps to HBO Max, care about a small, small portion of a 10,000 show and film library being disappeared from a platform? To answer that question, I had back someone we've had on the show before, Julia Alexander. She is director of strategy at Parrot Analytics, an analyst firm that looks at streaming. And she's a writer at Puck, where I work. She's written about this for the What I'm Hearing Plus newsletter, which is an offshoot of my newsletter. So we had Julia in here today to talk about the great HBO Max vanishing. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Julie Alexander, returning champion. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. So you are writing about this topic constantly, and it's something that I'm interested in because there's been a freak out over the last couple of weeks about what the hell is going on at HBO Max. Even as House of the Dragon is setting new viewership records for the service, there's this narrative that there's a purge going on on HBO Max where shows are just disappearing. They are there one day and they are gone in the ether the next day. 
And, you know, it's what, 36 shows that have gone so far. There's probably more coming shows and movies. Um, these are not very highly watched shows. They are low performing. And basically, the management of the company is saying, let's get these off the service. We can use them better elsewhere and we can make some money by not having to pay people when they are distributed via the service. Is that all that's going on here? Take us into the thinking behind HBO Max's purge. I mean, I think that's the surface wound, right? Like that's, these things are disappearing and people are paying attention. Many are people are paying attention for the first time to vinyl again. Like, you know, this, these are not exactly shows that are Game of Thrones level successes for HBO or Warner Brothers that people are actively seeking out. And so on the surface level, it is this idea of like, okay, things are disappearing. Um, and it's because HBO Max doesn't want to pay or Warner uh, Warner. Warner Brothers Discovery, rather, um, doesn't want to pay residuals. They don't want to pay the co-production companies that they are working with to carry the titles. They're spending, you know, millions of dollars of uh, millions of dollars a year on paying out various parties to keep these titles on the platform, and they're not really seeing the engagement that would necessitate the value. On a deeper level, I think the more interesting conversation is what Warner Brothers Discovery is pivoting away from and pivoting to. So when we look at the titles that are being removed, a lot of them are family and children programming, and a lot of them are animated series. If you're Warner Brothers Discovery and you're looking at a barrel of billions of dollars that you're going to continue investing into content, um, and you're looking at the same level of debt that you're continuing to pile up, you have to make decisions on where you really want to play and what white space is available to you and what areas you don't want to play in. If I'm David Zaslav and Co., I'm looking at two key things. One, Disney and Netflix, who are hyper-involved in children's um, programming and will continue to be hyper-involved in it. And they're really going to take the, uh, the investment necessary to be in that space successfully. But two, I'm looking at YouTube and I'm looking at TikTok and I'm like, kids are not coming to HBO Max to watch programming. This is not the app that they're asking their parents to open up when they're sitting down in front of the television. So if you are, if you're the streaming service that's really popular amongst let's say people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, you don't really need family and children's programming. So there's a way to say, well, why don't we just pivot away from that right now and focus on where we can continue to really thrive in? And that's something like Game of Thrones. That's something like HBO comedies. That's, you know, the big Warner Brothers movies or whatever it might be. So I do think that although all the attention, all the headlines are like on the number of titles being removed, the underlying question, you know, the real infection point at the company is what areas are they going to move away from entirely over the next three to five years? I mean, what areas are they going to double down on and areas they're going to move away from include animation and kids programming. It's a bit surprising to me because if you look at the brands that Warner Brothers Discovery has, they're pretty significant animated brands. Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, Hanna-Barbera, Looney Tunes. I mean, these are pretty big brands. And listen, I've got a kid who's in the wheelhouse of the, this kind of programming. He does look at HBO Max. He does watch Sesame Street. He does like the Tom and Jerry movie. So, you know, they they see the numbers. I do not. And they're definitely making a choice here. But it seems like this is a choice they were kind of backed into where if they had their full, you know, competitive means, they would be in this space. But given the amount of debt they have, given the cost cutting that they have to do over the next few years, they are saying, all right, we're going to concede here. The streaming wars has a concession at HBO and it's going to be kids shows. 
Right. And I would put very good money on it that eventually Warner Brothers Discovery comes back into kids programming. The thing with kids programming is you can't just order two, three, four shows and then be like, look, we're in the space. This is great. You're ordering slates. You know, when when Netflix really said we're going to get into animated programming um, directed at children and families, they were like, we're going to do six feature films a year. That was going to outpace Pixar. It was going to outpace Walt Disney Animation. They said we're going to go all in on it in the way that Netflix really does. If we look at what Warner Brothers Discovery was trying to do, both when it was Warner Media under Jason Klar and then when now when it's under David Zaslav, there was like some investment in kids programming. I mean, they obviously spent a bunch of money on the Studio Ghibli collection to have the exclusive U.S. rights. They spent a bunch of money on getting these, these brand names. They wanted to make Cartoon Network this kind of focal point of the streaming service in many ways. Think that level of investment compared to the payoff that they're seeing in comparison to other verticals that they have on on the platform, you know, whether it's um, HBO as a whole, whether it's the Turner Classic Movies, like whatever it might be, just isn't there. And so if I'm them, you know, what's an easy way out right now that's going to help us on the income sheet and on the balance sheet over the next 18 months? We really help our shareholders and our investors see that we can be this profitable company. You know, that's kind of the area that I'm looking at. What I will say to your point, Matt, is like, with all the titles being removed, there are these giant asterisks that we're not really seeing in the reporting. We talked about Sesame Street. They took out 200 episodes. Most of these episodes were from before like 1985. The other ones are still on the platform. And we look at what they're going to do with continued but animation. for how long? For how long though? Are they going to renew that deal? Probably not. Probably not. And and but I think if we look at where they haven't touched things really, you know, there's a lot of DC projects on the animation side that they're still kind of committed to. There's a lot of animated programming on the Cartoon Network side and the Adult Swim side that they're still committed to. They're not removing Steven Universe or they're not removing Adventure Time, which are huge programs for them. You know, they're removing programs that likely when they look at the cost to value comparison, don't make a lot of sense to be kept on the platform. You know, they cancel Young Justice after four or five seasons, or I think it was four seasons. That's a DC show, but not strong viewership in comparison, I imagine, to other titles. If you look at titles like Generation, which was uh, an HBO Max original that kind of focused on queer youth, I mean, that show had a very vocal um, fan base, but canceled after one season, I think, tells you a lot, especially at a network like HBO um, and, of course, now HBO Max. And so I think there is this like rationale that I can see, which is if these programs are costing us more money than they are to engage with, and especially as we're about to bring in an, a huge swath of new programming that's going to bury these even more and they're just going to sit there untouched, why keep them on the platform when we can make some of that money and then pay off our debt and reinvest into content that we think might actually engage audiences? So I get that. And the way that they do that is they, you know, you do not have to pay residuals right. if you are not displaced distributing the shows, meaning it's not available. You also save money by potentially selling this content elsewhere. You know, Warner Brothers has a great syndication arm where they can syndicate programs to other services. That has sort of been antithetical to the previous version of the streaming wars where you tried to hoard it all on your own platforms to gain subscribers, but they now have a different strategy where they're going to try to make as much money as they can. But it's going to be unpopular. I mean, I'm just scrolling Twitter this morning. First of all, Zaslov is trending. Something <laughs> a CEO never wants to trend on Twitter. Um, the animation fans are pissed. David Zaslov doesn't deserve to run a company. I'm looking at these tweets. HBO Max is a victim here. They're treating animation fans and creators like hot burning garbage. Whoever manages to buy up the Batman show, they just canceled the Batman show, will have a new gold mine. Zaslov, dumb as hell. Cut off his dick. Ooh, 
That's a new one. All of these comments are directed at David Zasloff here because this is the animation community, right? They love to complain. The animation community is very vocal. And I think, you know, if we look at what's been happening to the animation scene over the last year, year and a half, like it hasn't been great. Netflix has had big layoffs, the animation section as they kind of figure things out. Now this is happening at HBO Max. And I think one of the issues... Well, one of the main issues with this story from the HBO Max side is that every single part of it was handled poorly. Like every single part of it was like they were, according to um, Owen Dennis, who created Infinity Train, which is a really critically acclaimed, beloved animation show that ran on Cartoon Network for two seasons and moved to HBO Max. Huge, huge vocal fan base. Um, his show was pulled from HBO Max. You know, he said we were supposed to hear about this, apparently, according to the reps that he spoke to, a week later um, from, from their actual reps who they work with. And instead, they didn't. They heard out from press. They heard from things happening to them on Twitter, people reaching out and saying, this is this is what's going on. And so we, we look at what's been happening. Not one step of this has really been handled in a way where you're like, oh, well, you know, it was an uncomfortable decision, but at least they went about it the right way. They don't care. I mean, honestly, they don't care. These right. are Wall Street guys. They're looking for that. I mean, I know, no, like I said, nobody wants to trend on Twitter, but ultimately those aren't the people that will pay the CEO's salary. It's the investors and the investors want to know that there's cost cuts. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly it. And I think also what we really have to acknowledge is that we came from a space where everything, every story, every aspect of the shows that you were watching, the films that you were watching, came from a place of a strategy of more and more and more and more. It was just like, we're going to put stuff on the platform. And if we think about it, Netflix led that charge because Netflix had a monopoly on the space. And Netflix had to do that because they realized they were going to be losing a bunch of their content. So they had to order a bunch of stuff, right? So the way that Netflix kind of made, changed consumer behavior to say like, hey, you should expect more and you should expect it to kind of be there almost permanently if it's an original, if it's an exclusive original, that no longer really exists, especially as all these companies who are coming from the linear side are trying to figure out, you know, one, how do we get our profit margins to be even a dent of what they were are on the linear side, on the cable side um, back in the heyday? But two, like, do we really need all of this? How do we maintain both these businesses? Is there a way that we can, especially if you have another syndication arm, is there a way that we can do something else with these shows that makes more sense for us and for Wall Street? And that's a really uncomfortable thing for fans to watch play out because they've had, they've been, they've been, you know, trained to expect certain things and now that's going away um, and it will continue to go away. That's the big thing here is we've been trained over the past five to 10 years to expect everything everywhere available all the time, right? So when things go back into this, you know, windowing system where maybe it doesn't make sense for these companies to give you anything you want at any time, people expect it now. I mean, if you've grown up with Netflix and if you've grown up with these services and you can't find something, you get pissed. But that's not the way it's always been. No, I saw a great tweet because it was just, I like I like um, messages that reinforce how fast and how cataclysmically consumer behavior has changed in a very short amount of time. And I saw a tweet that was like, wow, thank you to the creators of Abbott Elementary for putting out um, a, the second season of the show so quickly. It was just a five month wait. And everybody was like, no, that's just broadcast. Shows end in May and they come back in September. Like that's <laughs> how broadcast works. But for a lot of them who came up on Netflix, it's like, oh, well, I get my first season, I get the full season, and then I wait a year, year and a half, and then there's a second season, hopefully. But so the idea of a broadcast schedule was kind of like new to these 13, 14, 15-year-olds who are kind of coming up on the content. So I think if we 
take that idea and then put in this aspect of like, well, Netflix and Hulu or whoever it was trained people to say, this is always going to be here and there's going to be more and you can just kind of expect it. Now we're going back to a place. And also just to reiterate, Netflix removes co-productions, like internationally, especially Netflix will take stuff off the platform. Meaning stuff that they don't own. Exactly, because they don't, for similar reasons, why should they have to pay for something that has low engagement? Like, that's not something that they necessarily want to do. But Netflix has avoided the widespread syndication of its old content, which I'm writing about this topic now. And it's like, that is that is going to go away, in my opinion. The the this notion that anything that's ever been on Netflix is always going to be on Netflix if they own it. Yes. I think that will end because of exactly what you're talking about. Not that many people are watching it. And if there's not that much value, you're gonna have to eventually try to find value somewhere. And that's gonna mean stuff's gonna disappear from various platforms. The best and the why Netflix hasn't done this yet, I don't understand. But the best, best possible solution for, I think, both the company and the consumers is to look at the potential opportunity in the fast, like uh, with the fa- the free ad-supported streaming stuff. Yeah, that's like Tubi, Pluto, Freebie, those services. They're free They and you have to watch ads. Exactly. And so, you know, launch of an HBO free channel, you know, launch HBO Max free channel, launch a Netflix free channel, take the stuff that's not doing super well alongside maybe one or two big shows that you're kind of like, well, we want to, you know, acquire more customers. And this is a way to kind of do it. But take all those shows that aren't really doing well, bring them to the fasts, have them stream because there's an audience there. And then you're saying from a public perspective, you're going, these shows are going to move over here because it it doesn't make sense for us to keep on HBO Max, but we're not going to get rid of them. They're going to stream on this free thing that we want to use as a marketing campaign anyways. I mean, that's not new. Did you ever try to watch Sopranos on TNT or Sex and the City on TBS? It's like they can't even show the Samantha scenes half the time because it's like (laughs) edited bleeped out. Right. And so I think to your point about like how effectively Netflix is going to go in the same direction, what we're saying is, you know, all the jokes about is streaming just becoming cable again? I mean, one, no, for many reasons, in my opinion. But two, there are elements of it where a lot of these streamers are going to go, oh, right. Actually, we are holding on to too much. We're paying for too much. Discoverability is a huge issue, which means that churn then becomes a big issue. But there's all these platforms that are kind of coming up. You know, it's great for Paramount or or the ones who kind of own a Pluto or whatever. And they're going, we can just launch a channel that we just put stuff on. And one, it acts as a free market, not free, but it acts as a marketing thing. Two, you have this public perception of like, wow, they're moving this content over here. They're not getting rid of it. And three, you get to actually test things out. Is there an audience for these shows that just aren't on your platform, but are maybe elsewhere? And I think we'll just, to your point about like the TNT stuff, we'll just see more of that start to happen because to not... Because to just to take a show, especially if you own it, and then just do away with it, and then just be like, oh, well, we had it, it was there, it didn't do well, now it's gone forever, when there's viable routes otherwise, I don't know. I'm about to blow your mind, and Craig's mind as well. There was a time where if you did not see a show when it aired on linear television at 9 o'clock on Thursdays, you could never see it again. Wow. That heartbreaking. My Grey's Anatomy heart. Yes, there was a time, or maybe in syndication at midnight, like five years later, but <laughs> there was a time where Disney would put out a movie, a kid's movie on DVD, and then they would just take it away. They would window it so that you could only buy The Little Mermaid at certain times, and then they would take it out of the market so that a next generation of kids would have to buy it again. It was kind of cruel. 
I love the idea of um, supporting the idea of the vault coming back. <laughs> Matt's like, hypothetically, what if we bring back the vault? The most hated the Disney thing. vault. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So if you're a consumer, should you care about this? I mean, if unless you're a huge fan of a series, I think you should care less about the fact that, you know, the generation stands out there are going to be pissed that they can no longer watch it every night before they go to sleep. I, I mean, I love Generation. I love half that cast so much. But um, I think, you know, 50 titles disappearing, not necessarily a huge deal when they've got 10,000 hours of content on their platforms. Should you be paying attention to what types of series are being are going away and where they're taking those cuts and what that might mean for you if you're a Cartoon Network or you're an Adult Swim fan? Yeah, that's something that I would kind of be like, what does this mean for this continued investment in this space for my favorite network or whatever it might be? I mean, there's huge Cartoon Network stands out there. Um, that's what I would care about. I also think like this is just the reality of it. It's, I mean, this is just how it, it's going. Like again, we I use this saying a lot, but it's it is a show business. Like they have to make money. Their stock is not doing great. They're they're in huge. They're carrying huge amount of debt. They're you know trying to figure out how to get to profitability as quick as they can. That means calling, and that means making those strategic pivots. But I would say my bet, if I'm a betting person, is that kids and family entertainment comes back to HBO Max in a big way in five years plus. I think it comes back. Mm. All right, Julia. Thanks. Are you an are you an adult who watches cartoons? So many. Uh, I'm inherently skeptical of people, <laughs> uh, grown grown adults who watch cartoons. But uh, I like you anyways. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Let's do today's prediction. Craig, it's NFL season. Officially, as of tomorrow, Amazon is launching Thursday Night Football on Amazon Prime Video. Are you excited? I'm curious. I mean, they got a huge slate of announcers. They have Herb Street, now Michaels. They somehow got dragged Al over to Amazon. They got Tony G. Yeah. They got Tony G, my favorite, Tony Gonzalez. Um, yeah, it, it, this is a big, the big question mark in sports media. I mean, you're a football guy. Like, this is a big change. You have to have Amazon Prime Video if you want to watch Thursday Night Football. They have done simulcasts in the past, but there's going to be a lot of people, I guarantee you, Trending on Google tomorrow is going to be, how do I watch NFL Amazon? Do you think this will be the first true test for old people who know how to watch something one way that have to switch <laughs> to watch it a different way? Uh, I think it's going to be a big test. I mean, there you know, you could argue that maybe Grace and Frankie on Netflix <laughs> was was uh, was a big test, but yeah, no, this. I mean, there is a wide swath of people. You and I think of streaming services as like second nature now, but there's a lot of people that just don't, and it's just not a part of their lives. But they like the NFL, and Amazon is counting on that, and they're saying, okay, how can we get people into our ecosystem? They're doing a lot of things. To make it easy, if you go to the Amazon website when games are on, the games will just start playing. That's really smart. I mean, again, because the, the NFL audience is 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 old. So, like there are going to be right. a lot of. It's not old. It's first of all, the NFL audience is everybody. Correct. It's varied. It does include old people. It includes a lot of rural people. It includes a lot of people who don't watch anything else other than right. NFL. So th this is a big deal. And the question is. What are the ratings going to be on Amazon? Because Amazon has agreed to use Nielsen for ratings tracking for the NFL season, which is a big change. Amazon does not release ratings information for anything else, but they have advertisers 
on the football game. So they need to report numbers. And now we have Nielsen tracking the Amazon numbers. Does Nielsen track numbers for other streaming services who provide ads? Nielsen does its own ratings based on limited data that is shared from the services, but it's not in the same time frame. Like they do a monthly um, you know, ratings report or consumption report of minutes consumed, but it's not like traditional television where there would be the Nielsen next day, you know, uh, you know, the next morning, how many people are watching. So this is going to be a big change. And also there's caveats here because the games are still going to be made available through direct TV at bars and restaurants and places that, you know, have, have large audiences there and may not have Amazon prime. And they're also going to play the games on television in the home markets of those teams. So you don't have to, you know, if you are a Chiefs fan and you're in Kansas City, you won't necessarily have to tune into Amazon Prime. It will be on your local station. So what's your prediction? So according to AdAge, Amazon is informing its advertising partners that it's predicting about 12.5 million viewers per game which would be down significantly from most Thursday night games on Fox last year. Uh, they got to about 20 million uh, for a couple games and they, they did go down. There were some shitty games where it was like 10 million, but people are saying that's a pretty good estimation. I am actually going to predict that the first game is going to be higher. I think there will mm. be a lot of consumer interest here, like, you know, checking it out, but throughout the season, it will probably come down a little because, first of all, the Thursday night games are not great. The first one is a pretty good game. It's Chargers Chiefs, which uh, I think will draw a, a lot of people interest, you know, initial interest. But I'm going to say that overall for the season, it's going to actually be lower than 12.5 million. Well, and you can tell that Amazon really wanted to to get the best slate of games they could. I mean, if you look at Thursday night football last year. Uh, the second game, because the first game doesn't really count because it's usually aired by a major network like Fox or Air CBS or something. But last year, it was the Giants versus the Washington Commanders. That was the first Thursday night football game. Nobody cares about that. This year, we have Chiefs Chargers, which is a huge game. The, the week after that, you have Steelers Browns. Then you have the Dolphins and the Bengals, the Colts versus the Broncos. Like, there's just a better slate of games, which I think is really going to help them. Well, that was important to Amazon. I mean, they, if they're going to do this, they wanted the NFL to commit to better games. I still don't think that the number is going to be that high. Think about the last big transition in the NFL was probably when Monday Night Football went from ABC to ESPN. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time, most people had ESPN and it wasn't that big of a deal. It was still in the cable bundle and ratings still dropped off pretty significantly when Monday Night Football went from ABC to ESPN. So even a little change in the routine of these, you know, where, you know, oh, I turn on this and the game is here. Even a little change makes a big difference. And this is an entirely new platform that you have to tell. Oh, you have to remember. Oh, yeah. Amazon. I got to go to that to watch the game. There's going to be a lot of grandsons getting phone calls at 520 p.m. Totally. Fully expect that. And I mean, my parents already get Amazon Prime. They watch Mrs. Maisel. But like this is <laughs> they're, they're definitely they're used to just turning it on. Yeah. Did you hear the Amazon uh, the Amazon Thursday Night Football theme song? I thought it was pretty good. I did hear that. <laughs> I liked it. 
they hired they hired like a, a interesting choice. There was like this you know, female composer lives in uh, the east side of L.A. and yeah. she said come up with a very different from John Williams doing the Sunday Night Football theme. Yeah, I was into it. I thought they did a decent job. All right. Well, Amazon is paying a billion dollars a year for these rights, and they're paying significantly more to put on a great production. So we'll see how it goes. All right. That's the show. I want to thank Julie Alexander from Parrot Analytics and Puck. I want to thank producer Craig Korbeck, and I want to thank you. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.